The ACURE Symposium is the world's only scientific conference dedicated to acute cardiac unloading. Join us for the 8th Annual ACURE Symposium August 24th in Amsterdam. Register today at acure.org, A-C-U-R-E dot org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for July 2023. Somehow we are already in the middle of summer. I caught myself checking out the lineup of hotline trials for the upcoming ESC meeting in Amsterdam, which were released earlier this month. Then I stopped myself. I do not need summer to go by too quickly. The problem is we had plenty of news to keep time flying this month, and I promise to tell you a bit about that at the bottom of this episode. Today's podcast, I am giving over to a conversation with, brace yourself, a nephrologist. As you may know, if you're a regular listener, I occasionally take a break from top cardiology news to interview a physician who also works professionally in the arts. I have interviewed visual artists and musicians. This month, I'm welcoming my first writer, Syed Tabatabai. A few months ago, HarperCollins published his first book, a collection of what I'll call prose poems about doctoring life and putting all of that into words. What is intriguing about this book, I thought, is that it was compiled in its entirety from his very popular threaded stories on Twitter, where Syed is better known as the real Dr. T. Syed, as I said, is a nephrologist and works at the San Antonio Kidney Disease Center in Texas. He spoke with me earlier this month. It is so nice to have you on the Heart Sounds podcast, Syed. I have a soft spot for writers, although I've been trying to have physicians doing different types of creative endeavors on this podcast so far. But you are my first writer, which is exciting. I'm honored. So your book, These Vital Signs, just came out about a month and a half ago now, I guess. Such an exciting roller coaster for you, I'm sure. It is uh, described as a poignant series of essays and deeply personal stories. I had the sense that HarperCollins, the marketing people, were trying to come up with the right way to describe these because they're actually pretty unique. <laughs> How would you describe them? I think you're absolutely right. It's, uh, in fact, one of the biggest struggles with getting this published was trying to figure out exactly what are these Twitter threads because that's what they were originally, right? They originally took form on Twitter. And uh, how do you translate that to the book? And, you know, what kind of writing is it? I think Harper did a pretty good job. I mean, I, I, in in essence, it's it's sort of almost more poetry than than typical, you know, narrative writing. I think the fact that they were written for Twitter and that character limit uh, sort of gives them a rhythm and a certain kind of structure to them that, that to me personally feels more like prose or poetry. I myself have done some creative writing and taken some creative writing courses and the terminology used, at least when it's in, as instructed, is a constraint. You know, you... Poetry is a good example because there's a villanelle, there's, a, you know, a limerick even. And it, by imposing that constraint, it pulls something out of the writing that isn't otherwise there. And for people that don't know, do you just want to give us a little bit of a history as to how on earth you even just started doing this? Sure. It's, it's definitely an unusual tale. Uh, I started off writing on Twitter uh, years ago, um, and I used Twitter as a uh, medium to try and quote grow my brand, quote unquote, because uh, at that time we had a social media person join our, our, our practice and we were, I'm in private practice. And, and, and back then the whole thing was, you got to get out into Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and you've got to talk about kidneys. 
you got to be one of these social media doctors and, you know, that's a place where you can get patients and all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, to me that, that shoe never really fit, but I, I, you know, dutifully, I signed on to Twitter. I'd had an account for years, but I had like six followers and, um, you know, three of them were my family and, you know, three of them were bots or whatever. And, um, I started writing and I, I really had no traction or engagement initially. And it wasn't very fulfilling, but I was enjoying the format of Twitter. I, I was enjoying the constraints that you talked about. Because to me, I, I've always loved writing ever since I was little. And I've, I've always written in some form throughout my life. And uh, I've written journals, stories. And when I was younger, I wrote comic books for myself, you know, all kinds of writing. And to me, Twitter uh, came across as a neat kind of, almost like a game, like a challenge. How could I say what I wanted to say within the confines of these character limits? And once I learned about threads, um, the fact that you could link multiple tweets together, I started writing more kind of long form. And the neat thing about it is you get one tweet at a time. And so you can sort of play with, you can almost have like a story within a tweet and then sort of pull them into the next tweet and kind of build this momentum. And um, I started experimenting and then before I knew it, it started resonating with people in a way that none of the stuff I'd ever written before had. And, and my follower account just started going through the roof initially. And um, I wrote one story and I went from like six followers on, on a Monday. And by Wednesday, I had like 15,000 followers. You know, everyone was sharing how the story impacted them, how they had similar stories. And then during COVID is really when it took off during the pandemic. Because at that point, I was writing for myself for survival, for therapy, for a way to deal with what I was seeing and going through. And I think it gave people a look inside the pandemic uh, from a different viewpoint. I think our communication during the pandemic, um, we had a bit of a, a blind spot in our science communication, and that was kind of the human aspect of it. And I think that's where this book really connected with people, these stories in this book. It's not a lot of jargon. You know, I know it's, I'm writing as a physician, but I'm also writing as a human being. And um, that's really where these stories resonate. Yeah. The book itself is um, divided into five parts, beginnings, lessons, practice and passions, pandemic and the precipice and endings. And I do want to come back to the pandemic and the precipice and some of the stuff you've just hinted at. But actually, you start out, as you say, with quite personal stories about your grandfather. People write for lots of reasons, but people talk about how writing helps connect them to their sense of where they came from. And that seemed to be a bit of what you were doing there. To just give people a bit of a sense of what those first stories, poems are like, what was that journey? What was that way of kind of reconnecting with that history? So as I was writing in earnest now and uh, writing with this new platform and these new kinds of stories and really finding my rhythm, part of me was also kind of looking to the past. And I was interested in, you know, my family and where I came from. And, and one of the things I knew was that one of my grandfathers, my paternal grandfather, was a writer. I knew that he had been a poet during his time. And I got interested in that and I started learning about his story. And then I found out it was a pretty remarkable story. And to me, it was kind of deeply moving to go through that experience because I've always wondered where this seed came from, where this idea, this kind of this burning you know, desire to write. And I felt this connection. And, you know, he died when I was relatively young. And so I wish he was around and I could talk to him about his process. And he wrote poetry exclusively. And um you know, I wonder what he would think of what I wrote. And, and you know, the first part of the book is really about where I came from. There are a lot of people in my family 
who've molded me. There's always many mentors. There's always, there are many places where we can trace where we came from. But I chose two people and, and they're both my grandfathers, my mom's dad and my dad's dad, because in a way they both encapsulate where I am now. One, one was a physician and one was a military man who also wrote, who had a, this literary side to them. And, and by retracing my past, I was able to understand a little bit better kind of what I was doing now and, and where it came from. I think people will turn to this book for lots of reasons, but I found in reading the sections, I mean, I liked reading about the beginnings, of course, and their connections with the past, but the, the section that's headed as lessons and the other one as practice and passions really traces your journey from a, a trainee into becoming a physician. And I really felt that there's a lot of empathy in these pieces, these poems towards your younger self. And I would say by extension, other young folks who've chosen the path of medicine. Was that intentional in terms of trying to use this medium to remind people that, yeah, it is a scary time in your life, especially in health, where you're trying to choose your area of, of specialization. At one point, a surgeon tells you that you should work backwards. But it, it seems to me that those ones, those, those pieces were a way to reach back to your former self, but also to hold out a hand to people who are also maybe wrestling with some of what you were doing. Do you want to speak to that? That's, uh, that's a beautiful way to put it. I think you're the first person who's connected those dots, you know, empathy for your former self. As I was writing, a big chunk of the people who followed me were obviously the med Twitter community and the medical folks on Twitter. And a, a big chunk of that community are trainees. And um, I think they gravitated towards my stories because a lot of what I write about is sort of revolving around that, that kind of vague concept of the why of medicine, right? Uh, everybody's why is different. But for me, a lot of my why was that human connection and, and what drove me. And you know, the, the training is hard, you know, for, for a lot of things, but particularly, you know, the way medical education is set up is it's just so grueling. It's just this kind of constant struggle, you know, and at least for me, when I was going through it, there weren't a lot of voices out there that I could turn to that were saying that it's going to be okay. You know, this is, this is what it's like. It's not the best process in the world. We need to make it better, but you're going to be okay. You're not alone. And I sort of found myself now listening to echoes of my former self and what students were saying. I, was, I started feeling those same anxieties, you know, that same imposter syndrome, that same kind of not knowing, the feeling that, you know, I'm pouring so much money and effort into this process. I'm sinking into debt. Where am I going to, where am I going to end up? You know, what kind of physician do I even want to be? I thought I knew, but I don't know. And there's, there's so much uncertainty. And I just wanted to help people. You know, I wanted to help people that were going through this. And use my writing a little bit to uh, tell my story, and in doing so, kind of reassure them that you know there is light at the end of the tunnel. You're not alone. You know the system is not great, but you know here are some ways to get through it, and here are some ways to think about it. And um, it's okay if things don't work out. You know it's okay if you change your mind. That's okay. No one ever told me that was okay. You know, <laughs> in the sense that it was so taboo. You know, you made it into med school. You made it over all these hurdles and everything. What if you didn't want to do medicine? You know, that option never even came up. But, right. you know, all kind of thoughts. I just want to get them out there and get people talking about them and get people just feeling better. I think that's what that's really what the goal was. Yeah, there's one I'm going to bungle the title, but one of the pieces is titled The Day I Quit Medicine. And, you know, it's a bit of a jolt of a title. And then you walk <laughs> through the thinking around how, in fact, you didn't quit, but you you rethought um, what your process would be. I can actually, this was the quote I was going to start with. You said you write in one of these, I began writing in medical school to preserve my sense of self 
I kept writing after I graduated to preserve the sense of wonderment that medicine was instilling in me. That line really stayed with me. I'm not a physician myself, but it is a way of, you know, you, you use writing to make sense of your world and then you use it to continue to understand your place in it. And I think people would, even non-writers, there's enough for people in there to really connect with on different levels. I did want to touch on the COVID pieces because for me, you know, I, I, I've read your book. I smiled and was moved by the earlier stories. But as, a, as I say, a non-clinician, the COVID pieces, you know, they hit like a brick. And I um, covered COVID really closely when it was happening. But to read those now at the stage in the pandemic that we, you know, we're not in supposedly, but COVID is still circulating and all those things. Talk a little bit about what it was like, because I can hear the pain in some of that writing. I'm assuming you did it to sort of stay sane, but you must have also done it in order to try to reach people to let them know what was happening in your in your world in the ICU. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I live in San Antonio, uh, Texas and South Texas. This whole area was really hit hard by COVID. You know, a lot of the writing in this book, I consider, you know, relatively easy in the sense that it was therapeutic for me to do. And, it, and you know, the story sort of just came and I, I just, you know, played with the format. It was fun and all that. The COVID writing, though, was different. It, it was easy in the sense that the words just spilled out of me, but it was also tortuous and it was also painful. And even as I was writing it, I sort of felt like this is important because it's not going to be this bad someday. And I need to be able to look back and remember what this was like because I can't forget this feeling. I can't forget what this whole experience was like. And, you know, and I appreciate that now because in many ways, you know, kind of the retroactive minimization of what happened during COVID but in some areas and, you know, this whole thing that it was all overblown. And, you know, then I read my stories and it takes me right back there. And I, I remember what it was like to face that kind of avalanche of death and, and just the kind of feeling of raw fear, primal fear, and the burnout and, and all those things. Initially, it was a lifeline for me, but then it also, as people were responding to the stories, again, this interactive social media component, people are saying, gosh, I, you know, I didn't know it was like that in the hospital. Because a lot of people, obviously, with you know, lockdowns and whatnot, they had no idea what was going on. I mean, they would see stories on the news, but the reality of it is often you know, different. So it became also another kind of lens, you know, another way to communicate. Because you had all the science communication going on. And honestly, a lot of that was not the best. You know, it could have been no. better. You know, it could have been a lot better. A lot of mistakes were made. But I was just trying to communicate on, a, you know, forget the science part, but people are dying and, and they're dying horribly. And this condition is terrible. And, and that's what a, a lot of that was about. Yeah. The writing in there is very raw. It's really sharply felt. And I'm sure it, it did touch some people's lives. I, I can tell. I'm curious about how this came to be published. It's a shameless plug, but my first novel was published by HarperCollins. And that was just this crazy ordeal trying to find a publisher. But did they come approaching you or did you put this stuff together and uh, send it out and try to find a publisher? Oh, boy. It's, it's such a... Every time I tell the story, I just feel so lucky because it's it's one of those things that intersection of just blind luck and opportunity, you know, in the sense that I actually had a manuscript of this book, um, you know, obviously an early version um, several years ago, uh, actually before COVID. It had no COVID stories in it. It was okay. all earlier stuff. And it looked very different from this final version, but I tried for years to get that manuscript published. You know, I... I <laughs> tried both routes. I had an agent, you know, I was without an agent. And um, I did get like one or two offers you know, from smaller publishing houses. But, 
you know, I was kind of thinking, yeah, I'll just do it myself. I'll just put it yeah. out there. And then I got super busy and then COVID happened and I was doing all the COVID writing and I put thoughts about publication on the back burner. And then I came out of all of that. And now my book, you know, I started swapping out stories. I started restructuring my manuscript. And while I was doing that, I was like, uh, I really want to publish this myself. I'm just, I have no energy. I have 10,000 things going on. You know, I'm practicing medicine. And then I just happened to one day be looking through the likes in a story and seeing which people had liked the story. And one of the names on there, um, on the bio, it said VP Harper Collins. And I was like, oh, wow, well, let me just shoot, shoot a message to that person. And it was, just, it was spur of the moment. I was exhausted. I sort of remember I was post-call and I, I sent the message. I, I just sent the DM. I said, hi, I, I noticed you liked one of my stories. I got a lot more where those came from. Are you interested in maybe uh, publishing a compilation or something? And I wasn't expecting a response. I really wasn't. And instantly, like within 30 seconds, she was like, let me call you. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And so it went from like literally years of, of nothing, of, you know, trying to get traction, getting a ton of rejections or, or mostly ghosted. You know, honestly, nine times out of 10, you don't get a response. At they all. don't even get back. Yeah. Yeah. They never get back to you. You know, I was checking my junk mail folders. I was checking my inboxes. You know, it's, it's, it's worse because you'd rather just have them tell you up front. But after all of that, for the actual final thing to be just kind of this bolt of lightning out of the blue. And then everything moved so fast after that. You know, I got a wonderful editor. I got this wonderful team of people and it took shape so quickly. And, wow. um, and they elevated me. They really did. The people there are fantastic. And the way they looked at the stories and told me, you know, I finally got external input that wasn't, you know, my family or my fans or whoever, you know, people who were looking at it through a kind of ruthless eye, you know, cutting down. And a professional and, and eye, which is. It, yeah, yeah, professional, exactly. And, and to be able to just provide kind of balanced feedback and, and it really made it better. That's such a cool story. Yeah. Every time I hear people say they want to self-publish, I always think, no, 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 don't. You know, there's a reason why publishing houses exist. It, it, it does elevate your work. It's going to make it that much better. This podcast is usually a synopsis of the top news in cardiology of the month. And then every now and then, I, as I say, I do these interviews with physicians who are doing creative work on the side. And the question I like to pose to them is, you know, you are a full-time physician. You are doing all of this doctoring. But what does having this creative outlet in your life bring to you? What, why do it? You know, what is it giving you um, professionally or personally that makes it worth all the pain and struggle? I think it's given me so much joy. You know, it's given me so much happiness and the ability to connect with people. And to me, I thrive on that. You know, for me, hell is basically just an isolated, lonely place for me. And to be able to share my thoughts and my writing with all these people and hear their stories in turn and hear them say, I know exactly what you need, or, or this moved me. I, I thought about something differently or have a student message me and say, you don't know how much, you know, this story helped me get through this or whatever. It's such a gift. It's such a privilege. I'm honestly so moved every time I read those comments. I think no matter what you do, whether it's writing or, you know, playing a musical instrument or reading or your podcast or what, whatever you do that's an outlet for you, you have to make time for it. I think if you live your life without taking time or making time to do something that you genuinely organically love and that brings you happiness, you don't know what you're missing. I think life becomes rote and routine and, and hollow ultimately. And, you know, I think that that might be driving 
lot of burnout for people. But for me, I've, I've been blessed with this great opportunity and this, this ability to share this overlap between what I do for my profession and what I do for my fun and, uh, you know, and write about it. And so to me, I can't imagine a life without my writing. Well, I have to say, I think I've soured on Twitter a bit for all the reasons that we won't go into. But yeah, I went in with a little bit of skepticism to the book and then I was really moved by it. So yeah, so I think you've done something really beautiful and I hope people will seek it out. It's uh, These Vital Signs, published by HarperCollins. And I had asked if you might read a little passage for us to finish with. Can you do that for us? Sure. I can, actually, it's, it's a passage that's the tag for the book. I can, I can go ahead and read that for you. Many of the deepest and most lasting lessons I've learned in medicine haven't been the dramatic ones that announce themselves with fanfare and great expectations. No, the lasting lessons have come in the quiet moments, the subtle and human moments that make us who we are, and in doing so, tell our stories. These moments don't always present themselves in obvious ways. You must be patient and willing to listen. You have to take the time and make the space. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the Heart Sounds podcast to tell us about your book. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. The full title of Syed's book is These Vital Signs, A Doctor's Notes on Life and Loss in Tweets. I would say don't let your opinions on Twitter cloud your decision making as to whether or not to lay your hands on this book. I don't think you'll regret it. I mentioned that July was actually a pretty busy month in cardiology. We saw the ACC AHA release an update to their decades-old guidelines on chronic coronary disease with an emphasis on GDMT, social determinants of health, imaging, and revascularization. At long last, we saw the FDA lift their warnings and restrictions on paclitaxel-coated stents and balloons in PAD. These were restrictions originally levied after a controversial meta-analysis was published more than four years ago, pointing to an increased risk of death with these devices. That has now been cleared up. Also in the U.S., the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services published draft coverage plans for carotid stenting that would, if finalized, see CMS covering the use of approved carotid stents in specific scenarios. That effectively ends a decade of limbo for these procedures. The proposed coverage decision was posted July 11th, meaning there is still time to weigh in during a second 30-day public comment period. Find the link to that at the bottom of Laura McEwen's story on TCTMD. We also had stories about the European Medicines Agency investigating the possibility of suicidal thoughts among patients taking the GLP-1 inhibitors for obesity. Top-line results for the Attribute CM trial of acoramidis in transthyroidin amyloid cardiomyopathy. We have coverage of the SCCT meeting in Boston and much, much more. I hope you'll watch out for our top 10 story, which typically publishes at the end of the month to help you catch up on anything you might have missed. That's it for Heart Sounds this month. Thanks for listening. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.